here I am, I'm saying things, the kids are asking questions, I'm answering with from uh, answers. The kids didn't know to be medayik, you know, to like dig into every word I was saying, but I started to talk about what Chazal believed or what a particular rabbi believed as it was no longer speaking in first person. I was telling them answers based on other people answers that no longer satisfied me. One one of the reasons why I took a break from Chinuch, that was a big part of it, is I, I, I just felt like it was hypocrisy and, and until and unless I could work out my issues that I, I couldn't be in a classroom. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. It's widely assumed that Jewish law requires the acceptance of certain principles of faith, most commonly associated with the 13 foundational principles that the Rambam wrote about in his commentary on the Mishnah in Masachet Sanhedrin. These principles, very broadly summarized, include God's existence, His unity and incorporeality, the fact that God is the eternal first cause and that prayer must be directed to God alone, that prophecy exists, that Moses was the greatest prophet, that the Torah was given to Israel through Moses, and that the Torah will never be changed or exchanged, that God is omniscient, he rewards and punishes, that there will be a Messiah, and that the dead will one day be resurrected. Again, this is a very broad summary, and the actual writing of Maimonides on the matter is more nuanced. Still, these are the principles of Jewish belief that everyone is supposed to assert and, according to the Rambam, not only accept as dogma, but also thoroughly understand. What happens, however, when a Jewish person says that he or she cannot accept all of these 13 principles, or even parts of them? What, for example, if someone believes that God communicates with humankind, but doesn't accept the literal transmission of every word of the Torah through Moses? How should a committed Jew continue observing the Torah when doubts emerge? Rabbi Pesach Somer experienced these doubts, and it led to a crisis in faith. Crucially, his crisis took place while he was a rabbi teaching in an Orthodox school, and while the crisis for him was very real, he also was able to emerge from it with a more nuanced and perhaps stronger faith than before. Today, Pesach tells us his story, from how he became a rabbi, to what sparked his doubts, how far down the rabbit hole of doubt he went, and what he was able to do to reinvigorate his faith so that he was able to develop a more mature and, in fact, deeper connection with God and Torah than before. We'll get to that conversation in a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started the Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in someone's honor or memory. If you want to reach thousands of listeners every single week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. 
If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, effective and entertaining podcast. Rabbi Pesach Somer is a member of the Judaic Studies faculty at the Ramaz Middle School in Manhattan. He is a veteran educator who has taught for more than 20 years in various schools, including MTA and the Yeshiva of Flatbush. Pesach is a graduate of Queens College, where he studied psychology, and he received smicha from Harav Zalman Nechemya Goldberg. He is involved with Project Makom, an organization for Haredim who are looking to find a more comfortable way of expressing their frumkite, where he speaks and offers guidance. Pesach is also a writer, blogger, and an accomplished speaker. His versatility allows him to speak on topics as diverse as biblical criticism, Hasidic thought and its ramifications for modern Jews, and losing and regaining one's faith. He lives with his wife and eight children in Passaic, New Jersey. Rabbi Pesach Somer, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Nice to be here. Rabbi Somer, we're going to speak about people sinking into religious doubt, experiencing existential crisis, and finding faith in the aftermath. I knew this was an important topic to address. I mentioned it on my Facebook page. I said that I was looking for people who'd be willing to be interviewed, and you wrote to me privately and said, and I'm quoting, I qualify for the Crisis of Faith podcast. So my job, for the most part, is mainly just to listen and ask you to tell your story. And I appreciate that you're willing to do so. We've been friends for a long time. I'm saying what people know, what I think about you. You're one of the most wonderful people I know, and I'm honored to be able to talk to you honestly about our own deep religious feelings. So thank you again. Can we just start at the beginning? Can you talk about your religious background growing up, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. So I um, I, I grew up in Queens, in uh, Flushing, New York. And I grew up in a family. You know, my, my, my mother, I think, was, you know, was, I guess you'd say, 1940s, 1950s observant. You know, I mean, I think they kept a kosher home, uh, you know, Shabbos, whatever. You know, I, I don't know exactly. But, um, but she had some sort of, you know, she had somewhat of a background. My father... Uh, them really, it's Aleyam, Mashalom, um, had much less of a background. His father died before his bar mitzvah. He went to public school and only went to, uh, you know, a Sunday school afterwards. Um, and so really, my parents sort of grew into orthodoxy. I mean, they, by whether you want to call it luck or hashkacha, they ended up in Kew Gardens Hills in the early 1970s before it was the Kew Gardens Hills that it is today, you know, which is just overflowing with, you know, from people in kosher restaurants and yeshivas, not that I should be putting kosher restaurants before yeshivas, but anyway, they really lucked out because some of their friends ended up in different places and and they had very different experiences, but they started out, there actually was a conservative uh, synagogue there then. Um, the building's still there. I don't know if the congregation still meets. I mean, uh, that, that clientele just doesn't really exist too much anymore in the community. They started out there. My 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 oldest my my older brothers, my only brother, um, started out in Solomon Shachter, and then they ended up gravitating, you know, toward to the young children of Gardens Hills. They switched my brother to YCQ, and little by little, we became Orthodox. Um, again, I would say, you know, nineteen eighties uh, modern Orthodoxy. You know, we were not worrying about uh, Borer or uh, having you know discussions about you know the Parsha necessarily at the table. But we were, you know, we kept uh, Shabbos as we understood it. We would not eat anything that was obviously not kosher. You know, I mean, a K would be good enough. And then, you know, I mean, that, that was pretty much the world I grew up in. I went to Yeshiva Flatbush for high school. And, and that was basically my, my, my world. 
But you moved in a more right-wing direction, if I understand it, soon afterwards. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I always say, I think, I think my mom felt bad that she had uh, some friends who's, whose kids really like flipped out and um, I was the closest she had. So she tried to think of me as like a flip out, but you know, I, I mean, I did wear a hat for a while, you know, on Chavez, but I was not, you know, I mean, she had friends whose kids ended up in Lakewood or whatever, you know, I mean, I was not that, but definitely, you know, I mean, I, I think I grew past the world in which I was raised. I mean, I, at, my, at my father's funeral, I actually spoke about that. I actually spoke about sort of comparing it to, you know, when the, when Hashem, after the Mirag, when Hashem says, you know, basically you, the next generation is going to go in. And I said, you know, how, how could he guarantee that? Maybe they'll, you know, and I, I spoke about this idea that the generation of the spies had gone as far as they could, but now their children would be starting from a different place. And, and, and that's really where it was. I mean, I was telling someone yesterday, you know, my father would like, would always say like this kid from the Bronx ended up with a son who's a rabbi, you know, he got a, got a kick out of it. I mean, no one expected it, not my teachers, not my parents, not my friends, not my siblings, and certainly not me. But once it happened, um, you know, he definitely appreciated it. And you spent some time in Kolel too. I did. Um, I, I we lived in Israel for two years. Um, the first year I was in a Sioni Kolel in Mivaseret Sion, an Israeli Sioni Kolel, and then I switched to the Asia Torah Kolel. Way shorter time than I would have liked. And again, you know, I, because it was a relatively short amount of time, I never really. I think if I had stayed in that sort of the, the second world more, I mean, I was. I, I think we were heading more towards something more Haredi, for lack of a better term. And then you came back to the United States and you became a teacher right away, or did you do something else first? So it's interesting. I had actually taught before. I actually, before we went, um, I, I was, uh, we, we moved out to Cincinnati for me to do, for an NCSY job. And I needed, it was only a part-time job. And I ended up getting a job in Dayton, Ohio, where pretty much, you know, I mean, the fact that I was Jewish and could read Hebrew made me a, a Torah teacher. You know, in other words, I didn't have smicha. I was not, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm a serious learner now, but I certainly wasn't a serious learner then. In Dan, Ohio, it was good enough. Standards were not what they were in New York, where you grew up. Yeah, absolutely. No, or, or, or Boston or Baltimore or Denver. You know, this Dayton's like way, way at the bottom. Um, and then someone um, actually said to me, he said, you know, Pesach, if you really want to be in Chinuch, you got to go and learn. Think he was necessarily talking about smicha, although again, for other reasons, um, and I think we talked about this once in a different podcast on Jewish education. You know, smicha mattered, but just as we both know, to the degree that you have something to give, you're an effective mechanach. You can be charismatic, you know, in the in the positive sense. You can be you can be engaging. You can connect with children, but if you're empty, you're not gonna. You know, so again, you'll be fun, you'll be cool, but you won't be a mechanach. And um, it was really good advice because, again, as I said, at that point, I, you know, I mean, it was kind of crazy that I managed to get into Kolal, and that's a story for another time. But I couldn't really make a landing on, like, a, I don't mean, you know, that I couldn't read a Rebbe Akiva Eger or a Reb Chaim. Like, I, I could not really translate a, a, a Daf Gemara at that point. And I think you're probably not alone. I think there are a lot of people in Chinuch who might be in the same place. I have to say that when I used to run a yeshiva and would go recruiting, sometimes I would mention very minor details. They might have given me the Gemara class for the day, and I would ask the difference between a mate and a Ruminhu, and I would see the teacher sort of twiddling his thumbs and hoping I wouldn't make him be involved in the conversation because I had a feeling he might not have known the difference either. I think it might be not so uncommon. But leaving that aside... Once you got smicha, you then became a teacher. You taught in numerous places. I know, I think you were in Seattle, you were in Yeshiva Flatbush, you were in a number of different places, correct? Yeah, uh, Vancouver, not Seattle, although they're near each other. 
let's now move into the main topic we want to talk about today, which is a crisis of faith. I remember Pesach when looking at your Facebook page, when this was going on, you can tell me exactly how long ago it was, but at a certain point, seeing posts which demonstrated that something was going on in terms of your sense of imuna, you were sort of giving these hints that something was happening. I don't remember the exact posts, but some of them were like, it's tough when you can't believe in Santa Claus anymore and things, things of that sort. I don't know if that was an actual one, but it might have been. So tell me what happened. What led to it and how was it manifest? Well, it's interesting. When I was teaching in one of the schools, I had a principal from uh, Shiva B'nai Torah in, in Farakwe. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, it's Rabbi Chait's Yeshiva, and it's a you know, super rationalist um, approach to Torah. And, you know, he brought this approach into the school. There was one other Rebbe there who was also from the same yeshiva. And one thing they do is that they sort of push back on a lot of the things that everybody believes. You know, oh, you think, you know, Hashkacha Pratis is on everything. God is involved. You know, every leaf doesn't fall. Well, take a look at what the Rambam says and what the Ramban says. And, the, and the truth is, again, I, I think part of the reason why they ha- they can have the effect that they do in school sometimes is, is because of the fact that, again, you know, YBT, again, it may not be the Hashkacha philosophy that I would espouse, but you come out of there knowing these things. I mean, at that point in my life, again, I was, you know, I was able to learn better than I had been before I went to Israel. I knew a little bit about a bunch of things, but not a lot about anything. And it started really throwing me for a loop. Like, how is it that the Judaism that I was sort of given in the general non-Orthodox YU from world um, was so far away from the Rishonim? You know, essentially, I didn't start to have a crisis of faith at that point, but sort of it was the beginning of chipping away at a Judaism that worked. It was just sort of like it was beginning. It was just this, this sort of dis-ease with how solid is my Judaism? How much do I really understand? How much is it based on Chazal and Rishonim? And how much is it folk religion? And again, it, and it affected me. I mean, again, you know, that it's they tend to, you know, be very much not into, you know, singing Zmiros. And and again, and this, these are open things. Again, you know, like, I, I don't think I'd be from, you know, you spoke before about my background, you know, going to Moshava as a kid and hearing, you know, some of these slow, you know, songs by, you know, what we, you know, we call it Sudash Lishit and sitting on the floor, that, that spoke to me deep, deeply. And all of a sudden hearing that there are these people who have this very different Judaism and where singing isn't part of it and where it's all based on, you know, rationality or what, or what we'd call rationality, whatever you want to say about that, um, it started to chip away. Again, not not that I had any sort of religious crisis, but I think it was sort of the beginning of the crack in the edifice, for lack of a better term, of what that I built. Years later, when it finally became not just, you know, small cracks, but as I called it, almost like, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts, I, I think it was sort of like the end process of that. In other words, if you go back you know, where I think it started to become manifest. And I don't, I don't, I don't think I had the exact wording that you said in the post, but yeah, where I definitely started to struggle was during my years in Yeshiva Flatbush. I think it was around 2010, maybe a little bit later, 2012, somewhere around there. I started to sort of, again, there wasn't one big thing. It wasn't like this, just this one question, but I started to have these real questions, you know, Torah Misina, you know, how do I know this is true? You know, kind of, you know, standard things that I think people can sometimes struggle with. You're teaching. You're supposed to be the exemplar of religious knowledge and wisdom, and you're at the same time going through this struggle, both earlier when you were in a school with the teacher from Yeshiva B'nai Torah and then afterwards at Yeshiva Flatbush. 
How did you manage to balance that? Were you open with your students or was it something you kept to yourself? The YBT stuff, I mean, again, it was it was kind of complicated in the school because there were the those from that world and those of us who were not and were sort of pushing back. And, um, you know, I was also significantly younger. We're talking about in like the early 2000s. And you know, I would have been when it started, gosh, really in my late 20s. And so, you know, I don't know if I'm not a canai anymore. I don't think anyone who knows me would, would say I've completely gotten rid of that, but I've definitely gotten it more under control. And so in a certain sense, we were sort of battling for the students, you know, sort of those of us who did not believe in this approach or who thought it was, you know, it was it was somewhat harmful. We were we would, as respectfully as possible, really sort of, you know, duke it out. Sometimes the kids would see us get into discussions with these other rebellion, sometimes in classrooms. I, I, I don't know that, it, you know, I, okay, I'll take that back. I do know it's it was not really the best way to do these things. I don't know what would have been. I think if I think about it now, I would approach it. But I, however, we could have worked within this. I don't think we did a great job. So that that was something pretty explicit. But at Flatbush, that was part of what tortured me is that I right, you know, like here I am. I'm saying things. The kids are asking questions. I'm answering with from uh, answers. The kids didn't know it to be medayik, you know, to like dig into every word I was saying. But I started to talk about what Chazal believed or what a particular rabbi believed. As it was no longer speaking in first person. I was telling them answers based on other people, answers that no longer satisfied me. And that was, it was, it was one, one of the reasons why I took a break from Chinuch. That was a big part of it. Is I, I, I just felt like it was hypocrisy. And, and, and until and unless I could work out my issues that I, I couldn't be in a classroom. Can you speak about specifically what some of those issues are? You mentioned a couple of them. You mentioned believing that the Torah is from Sinai. What else in particular bothered you? And let me ask you, how did that derive from those initial problems about the rationalist approach? In other words, what was the the path that led from, oh, what you think is true about Judaism isn't true, those people are still saying the Torah is from God, to doubting even the things they weren't talking about? So I'm curious both about what was the path and then what were the specific doubts that plagued you? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think that, you know, that's the thing. I, I think rationalist Judaism, you know, is a is a oxymoron. You can be less weird in being a religious person, but you're never going to be rational in being a religious person. You're never going to be, you know, rationally explain why you're tying, you know, leather boxes to your head or walking around with like various plants and shaking them in particular ways. Um, and so that's the thing. I, I think in a certain sense, it just I took it to its logical conclusion. Right. You know, in other words, like if we're supposed to really live by rationalism, you know, yeah, you know, the Rambam had a rationalism that worked, you know, in uh, in the 12th century, but it's not a rationalism that stands up now. If, okay, you know, if we're supposed to be rational, you know, let's let's put it all to the test of rationalism. And if you do that um, and you're honest, it's hard to not get to a place where you say there's no, you know, logic, rationality, you know, can't get you to to be a mom, can't get you to. Uh, so. I think that was a big part of what really, you know, that's the sense in which I'm connecting the dots to something that had happened more than 10 years before. But I think it was just, you know, okay, you've gotten me to be less emotional in my Judaism. You've gotten me to value rationalism or at least to struggle with it. All right. Well, you know, look look what happened now. I'm really struggling with it. I'll say that, and I'm certainly not an expert in Yeshiva B'nai Torah or I don't want to denigrate it in any way. I'm sure it works for a lot of people, and I've seen it has produced some real Tamadei Chachamim and real Ma'aminim. My own personal complaint against that approach is it echoes yours effectively, Pesach, which is that 
trying to emphasize the rationalism of the Rambam, which, as I see it, is what it tends to do, is dealing with issues that were philosophically compelling 800 years ago. Whereas now, in the 21st century, a lot of the issues that the rationalists of once upon a time of the Rishonim would have dealt with, those issues either don't bother us or are simply irrelevant to the issues that are on the table today. I'm not sure that the rationalist approach as such, using the Rambam and the Mordevuchim, as important as it is, speaks to the average 21st century questioning Jew. That's my own take on that. Yeah, no, and I, th- I think you could take that even further. In other words, I think if you want to really be true to the Rambam, um, being true to the Rambam is not continuing to use his book from back then, but doing what other rabbis did over time, making a Mordevuchim for a particular time. You know, in other words, there are various Sfarim that either actually have that name or essentially did that, you know, Linavuche Hador for Rav Cook. I'm forgetting his name. Um, he was the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. It is to do what the Rambam did with the understanding of the current world. In other words, to try to say, oh, the Rambam, you know, if he was alive today, he would want you to believe what he, what he, no, he wouldn't. In other words, he would do what he did then with what exists now. You know, you, how do you deal with archaeology? How do you deal with biblical criticism? How do you deal with you know, uh, postmodernism, how do you, whatever it is. In other words, so those who literally, you know, sort of rework the concept of Moranavuchim or who conceptually do, you know, most recently I'd say someone like Arab Shagar, um, that's being true to the Rambam, not not sort of insisting that his his book put these questions to rest. Okay. Let's go back to what we were talking about before. What specific questions were bothering you at that time? And I'll ask a second question as a follow-up. Does bothering mean that you no longer believe them or you never got to that point? So what were the issues that bothered you? Um, so, you know, it's interesting. In the classroom, I always say I'll, I'll answer any question, but I won't introduce questions. Um, and, you know, that's a, um, you know I, I don't think it's anything, it was anything crazy. I do remember the first, I, I remember the first one that really hit me. This was actually, it's funny, you mentioned Kolel before. I was years ago. It was a guy in uh, the Isha Torah Kolel who was... Uh, from England, I mean, I remember his name. I won't say it. I don't know if he would, you know, uh, but he was from England. Either learned and uh, had studied in Oxford or Cambridge. Brilliant guy, and he uh, he flipped, you know. And uh, he had a brother back home who was trying to, you know, save him, deprogram him, as you will, as you know, often happens with people who, you know, whose family ends up in. A, but this was not a, just any brother. He would like, you know, and again, this is before the internet when you actually had a uh, research, you know, when you didn't just. Uh, and he would send these like 13 to 15 page letters trying to prove things, you know, could not be true. Um, and I, of course, thought this was hysterical. <laughs> of course, there's no questions on this. And one time I said to my Harusa, I said, you know, can I see one of those, you know, thinking it'd be really funny. And it was basically, I mean, there was, I don't know, 10 pages, 15 pages on how the, a literal world flood could not have happened, you know, about 4,000 years ago that wiped out everyone except for eight people. And by the time I was done, you know, I, I didn't publicly acknowledge it in the slightest, but it was like this holy cow moment. It was like, wow, you know, and it wasn't so funny. Right. And right. And, and it sat me for years. I was I, I did not think I was allowed to even think about it. I wasn't certainly going to ask anybody. And it was only later on that I found out that, you know, there, there are those who address it. That was really the first thing. And I remember uh, Dr. Schneer Lyman, who I was, you know, I mentioned Kugar and Sills before I was lucky enough that when I got into Torah to discover that less than a block away from my house was one of the most fascinating scholars in the world. Remember, he told me about, he, remember, he told me about Rav David Tzvi Hoffman. It, you know, whether or not you take Rav David Tzvi Hoffman's approach, that it was a localized flood or other approaches, but it was just, it was sort that was the beginning of sort of at least seeing that potentially 
you could have answers that you are allowed to ask these questions, but there wasn't necessarily that for everything else. Again, you, you know, you talk about Torah. But what was that everything else? What were those things? Like, was it Torah Mina Shemayim? What were the things that bothered yeah, yeah, you? Yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely Torah Misina. Again, just, you know, does, you know, is there a God who listens to my tefillah? In other words, you know, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Again, you know, I, I sort of grew up in this, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, when like the YBT guys were talking about all these Rishonim, I didn't, had never learned them at that point. I kind of grew up with this sort of like modern Orthodox, you know, why you orbit naivety that like our guys could fix anything. And so when, when these questions started going up, I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just find the book where of Rabbi Lamb or of Soloveitchik or of Lichtenstein. They obviously have answered all these questions, just have to find the book. And, you know, and then you have this moment where you're like, whoa, there is no book. Like, what do I do now? And, you know, that's the thing. Again, you know, like, I, I don't think it would be any different than what a, you know, like a thoughtful Shana Aleph kid could come to school wondering about, one, uh, wondering about or someone who takes uh, intro to Bible class at uh, YU um, and all of a sudden discovers that there's a lot out there that is going to make them uncomfortable or someone, you know, or look, anyone who does an internet search, let's be honest. So in other words, I don't, again, there's beyond that, there was nothing, again, there was nothing earth shattering. It's not like I discovered some new question. It was just, and again, I said it was sort of like death by a thousand paper cuts. It wasn't like one thing, like if you could just answer this, I'll be fine. But it was just, you know, again, you know, one of the things people talk about now, I, I don't know, I don't love to talk about this so much, but even the nays of the Pachashem, you know, why is it that it's not mentioned until hundreds of years later? And again, you know, what do you do with that? You know, but again, it was a small thing. But and we can talk about it later on when I sort of dealt with it with someone who actually helped me through this. But again, but even just something like that, you know, in other words, here's this holiday, everybody's celebrating. We're all, you know, doesn't. And again, if you're a rationalist, you know, if we're celebrating a miracle and a rationalist may well ask, you know, what proof is there that the miracle even happened? If it happened, they would have talked about it much sooner. How do you keep Hanukkah then? I mean, of course, you keep Hanukkah, but how do you find meaning in it? Well, then let me ask you about that. You said, of course, you keep Hanukkah. At what point, when you say a death by a thousand paper cuts, and perhaps I'm being medallic in the word death, which might be too far, at a certain point, would you say you lost your faith or you got to the point where you were questioning your faith? So it, I, I think it's hard for me to answer that question because I, I don't know that there's like a point where you just say like, okay, you know, again, like there are people who say, you know, who do realize they, you know, whatever, you know, I, you know, OTD, I'm done. I, 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 I never was at that point, but it was, it really was, it was agony. I mean, I used to, um, I used to bring a pile of, you know, svarim to, to shul, not because I was dying to learn, but because I was dying not to daven. In other words, you know, davening in in that state where, you know, it just may just be just a silly charade was just agony. I also realized, like, no matter what conclusion I reached, I was not going to destroy my family. Um, you know, in other words, I was going to fake it. I was, you know, dumb enough to think that I could hide it from my wife, but I was going to keep it from my child. I was going to, you know, be, you know, basically whatever the, you know, orthoprax and just sort of fake it. Um, but it was, but but it's agony. so you never stopped keeping halakha, in other words. No, you always were observant. So that's the thing. Like there would be times where I'd be by myself and I'd be like, "What reason do you have not not to have kosher? You know, to eat non-kosher right now?" I'd be like, "Wait a second. If I if I go get a cheeseburger right now, like how much of that is because I've always like just wanted to try a cheeseburger? And how you know, in other words, like if it ends up leading like to taiva, that you know, like I I I can't trust that. So. You know, that's, I was never, you know, I wasn't breaking Shabbos. I wasn't secretly texting or, you know, you know, in any of these, you know, kind of like underground things that existed back then. I was keeping everything. I was going to keep on keeping it. But it was, but again, it's it's agonizing to daven to, you know, again, you light Hanukkah candles. Like, is this, you know, it, it, it was tough. It was very, very, you know, I never reached a point where I'm like, I'm done, but I'm going to keep on faking. But I was, 
I, I was very close to the border. And how long did that go on for, that feeling of being close to the border? So it's an interesting question. In other words, you know, because one of the things I did after I discovered there was no book is I just started talking to anyone I could, who I thought may be able to help and reading anything that could help. You know, again, it would be different people. You know, I'd, I'd talk to Dr. Alan Brill and he would say, uh, you know, you should read, you know, uh, Elias Berkowitz. Oh, okay. You know, you know, uh, go to go to Amazon. You know, order it. Okay. You know, that was helpful. This chapter, not so much. Okay. Oh, footnote. Let me see what he, you know. And little by little, um, it was him. Uh, it was Rabbi Susser Katz. Um, it was uh, Rabbi Jeremy Weeder. He was very helpful. I mean, you remember me from my running days, where you know I was a thin, beardless uh, rabbi, and uh, you know, and uh, and, and Rabbi Weeder. I don't know how many people know. He's a he's a serious runner as well. We used to go for these these runs on Friday morning. You know, he was at YUC. He was off on Friday. We'd, we'd look, run along um, the, the Hudson River on the New Jersey side. And and I, I called it Born to Run. And when, I would just, like, fire everything at him. I remember, like, one of the things I asked him, I asked him about, about Hanukkah. And he gave me an approach. And, you know, that was the thing. Part of what it was, you know, I think part of what he gave me was that you don't have, you know, that you don't have to go back to what you, you believed before, but that you could sort of take everything off the shelf and look at it and say, keep it reformulate it, no longer hold on to it. And that was like really, really helpful. I mean, it, um, I, I think I knew of this Mamar Chazal before, but I think I, I forget where this is. It may, maybe in the Gemara Menachos, where it talks about Hashem creating, you know, Olam Haba with a Yud in this world with the hay. I think it may be from there where it says, you know, why are there two, you know, why is there, why is the bottom of the hay empty? Because you could fall out through there. And then why is there another opening? Because you can climb back in, but you can't go, go back in the way you went out. Um, and and, that, and that's what Rabbi Weeder really gave me permission to do was like, I thought like sort of like, oh, yeah, I have to go back. You know, I have to use my rationalism and my Judaism is going to have to fit that. And if I can't do that, I can't go back. And all of a sudden it was like, wait a second, like if you're going to go back, you have to have a Judaism you believe in, a Torah mitzvah you believe in. Uh, but it doesn't you know, it doesn't have to be and maybe it can't be um, the one that you had before. And that was very free. Now I could try all sorts of new things on. And, and that really helped me. Um, I, I just started to find all sorts of stuff out there. That's, you know, I think, you know, uh, very into Hillel Zeitlin. You know, that was when I, I remember in a footnote, I think from uh, um, Arthur Green, I think in one of his, something he wrote an essay. I remember I, I'd never heard of this guy. And here's this guy who himself, you know, born religious, brilliant, you know, goes through this decade plus long religious crisis um, and writes about all of it. You know, it's like we're, you know, people who struggle, we're always looking for someone, you know, you know, I, I happen to know that, you know, there's a big, American Rosh Hashiva who went through a big religious crisis, but it's not talked about because you can never say it. But here's Hillel Zylan who's like, okay, I'm a newspaper writer, so I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you where I fell off, what I'm doing when I'm struggling, how I make it back philosophically, religiously. And I'm like, whoa, dude, where have you been? And and and, and that's part of it is also I started to be like, how is it possible? I mean, there's so many people who are out there who are struggling with things. How is it that... that I could, you know, again, I'm a decently well-read person. I'm a rabbi. I teach Torah. Never heard of Hillel's Island. I've never heard of Isaac Breuer. It was sort of, it was deeply helpful. It was also sort of deeply troubling to me that I that I feel like in a certain sense that we were sort of cheated out of meeting some of the greatest thinkers who who could, you know, literally or or conceptually write a Moronavuchim for for this time. Now, can you talk about some of the different types of approaches you had? In other words, if you're having a problem with the flood, or with the idea of Torah Misenai, Torah coming from heaven, and then you're not really accepting it anymore, at least certainly not as fully as you once had. How does one come back from that? Meaning, it sounds like 
let me rephrase the question perhaps. Does it mean that you're able to regain the dogma in its original form or you're able to rephrase and reorient the understanding of what those things mean in such a way that you can now accept it? I guess what I'm really asking is the Pesach Somer of... 1995, would he have looked at the Pesach Somer of today as Napikaris? Or would he have said, oh, I like what his approach is? So it's interesting. Um, I, I don't know what he'd think about the one now. You know, I, don't know if you, you know, I think I'm sure you remember I had a blog and when I, I called it Pesach Shani because it really was. It was me 2.0. Mm-hmm. Um, and But on the way there, while I was going through the crisis, I mean, one of the most painful things, like I think about it now, I can still feel the hurt. Um, I, you know, I was writing, I think it was even before my blog, I was writing sort of things and I was maybe hinting at things, maybe not doing such a good job of hiding it. I used to send it out to people, you know, as an email and, and, and uh, you know, I don't know who read it, who didn't read it. Um, but one of the people I sent it to, there was a family in Baltimore who I'd had a nice relationship with. Um, I had learned with one of their sons who could had, you know, couldn't be in a Jewish school. And one day the father just basically wrote to me like, I mean, I'm sort of troubled with where you are. I don't think I can read it anymore. Please remove you from, me from the list. Um, and it hurt, you know, because it, because he was right. In other words, it wasn't like, you know, my judges was perfect. How could you do that? But like, yeah, you're you're seeing something real there. Um, and but that's the thing, like a little bit. I, I think ultimately, I think the biggest change in perspective is and I, you know, I mean, I think, you know, from the perspective of Chinuch, I think about this a lot. I think is that the Orthodox world says Torah is from God and through Torah, you can find God. And if you do that, then as soon as you have a crisis about the Torah, automatically you have a crisis about God. Um, and I've come to sort of think about it in the opposite direction. There's a God, there's a creator. And, you know, and again, we could talk about where that would come from, obviously. But that, you know, that creator is constantly speaking to us, you know, in a, in a Rav Cook, in a Rav Sadok sort of sense that that creator is always communicating and in a kind of larger sense and there's all sorts of mamre chazal dr sam liebens has a great cheer on this you know where what is torah is torah the five books of moses or is torah the thing that pre-existed you know before creation and so if you can sort of come to god and see torah as the dvar hashem in the broadest sense possible so then no one can touch that you know, like, and again, like sort of Isaac Breuer, they, they say he had two, I don't know, photographs, paintings, whatever he had hanging in his in, in his house. One of them was his grandfather, of Shemshavah Lersh, and one was Kant. And he said that he, right. like, God had sent Kant to save religion from philosophy. And the, the, the sort of sense of, you know, that, that and again, and it's sort of, and, and this also starts pushing back on that, that stuff from YBT, is rationality so rational? Is science a good way to look at the, the non, you know, sci- physical parts of the world? Once you have God, once you're infused with God, and you know God, of course, will speak through everything. So then, you know, you know, again, like so that's the thing. So you know, like Allah, Isaac Breuer, you know, just like Kant would say, you know, you can can never know the thing itself. I and mean, Breuer really said, when you're criticizing the Torah, you're you may be like damaging, you know, the the the, the leather it's, parchment it's written on or the letters. You're not touching the thing itself. Um, and I think once you come from that perspective, yeah, okay, what does it mean to Armin um, You know, how do you look at the model? You know, to me, it's, you know, it's interesting, but it's not even like really touching on what Torah is. So Torah is the Dvar Hashem, that I know for sure. How to treat each particular part, how to touch, you know, the physical, you know, what to say about the physical chayven. It's like, to me, it's like, who cares? You know, in other words, Torah is much, so much bigger than any of that. Like it just, I don't know, like biblical criticism to me now, it's just, it's so far away from the way I think about the world. It's just, you know, you ask me, how do I answer the question? It's just, it's no longer a question. 
that's interesting because it sounds like when you were in the midst of your crisis, you also were losing faith in God. And it sounds like now the other questions went away because of your intense emunah Bashem, if I can extrapolate from what you're saying. How did you go from, why am I davening? Is anybody even listening out there? To what sounds to me like a very experiential, powerful feeling of God. When you read the, the, the you know, whether you talk about Rav Cook, you talk about uh, Hillel Island, you talk about Rav Sadok, uh, Rav Hutner, I, I, you know, or, or you take Rav Aaron Lichtenstein when he says, you know, the source of faith is faith itself. You know, or someone was talking, yes, I was listening to a podcast where my friend uh, Ravi Levi Morrow was being, you know, uh, interviewed. And um, again, he's telling me to have Rav Soloveitchik. Well, you know, I think, you know, I'm not such a big Rav Soloveitchik guy, but the Rav Soloveitchik also, like, sort of saw, you know, philosophy as making it, you know, the ability to move away from living in a, you know, trying to prove everything rationally to something existential or experiential. Certain kind of, why is there anything? You know, I mean, just basic ideas of science that, you know, anything physical has a previous physical cause, like it can't, there can't be an infinite, you know, uh, regress going back, you know, that, where did it start? You know, how did, how do we go from inorganic matter to organic matter? Again, you know, are, are none of these are proofs. I think it's a silly, I, I, I don't talk in the terms of proofs, but again, once you sort of come to the sense that there's got, you know, or again, just something as simply as, you know, I mean, if, if we put on the right pair of glasses, we and everything we would see, we would just see energy. We would see subatomic particles. You know, we're made of the same things as stuff. What are we, you know, besides the same stuff that, in a, you know, inanimate objects are? And yet, you know, again, we, there's something called life. There's something called thought. There's something called, to me, there's something, there's a soul there. There's a, there's an untouchable, unknowable soul that, that science can never say anything about. They can reduce, oh, this part of the brain is where it's from. Fine, but where's the thing called, that's making us do that? Show me the chemical, show me the enzyme, show me whatever. I don't know. I don't, I'm not a, but I'm saying, but in other words, the idea that there's got, there's something bigger than what we can see and what we can experience and what we can know. I mean, that's the sense that, like, again, like, like this whole idea of like rationalism as a, a system that, that should be like, I, I don't know. It, it's kind of, it feels kind of silly to me. It's interesting because I tend to agree with you that too often we are taught in Yeshivot that the way to God is through Torah. And I'm not discounting that, but I think for a lot of people it's the opposite, as you mentioned, that the way to Torah is through God. By first immersing oneself in the experience of the divine, one can then appreciate the divine character, what he said to us, of his words, however that's defined. And I sometimes wonder if we don't allow that secondary way of doing things to become the primary one. I'm not quite sure. Let me ask you also, Pesach, in terms of your feelings about dogma, because if I can extrapolate from what you're saying, it sounds like you've moved away from a dogmatic assertion about certain things. I don't mean that you're denying dogmas. That's not what I'm trying to say. But they don't speak to you in the same way that they might have spoken to Pesach 20 years ago. And if I'm wrong, please tell me if I'm misunderstanding it. I'm guessing that you're as I said before, that your Judaism is much more predicated upon an experience, the feeling of God, and then moving forward from there. If that's true, if what I'm saying is accurate, what do you think the place for dogma should be for questioning Jews today? Should it be de-emphasized or perhaps better supported? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, everyone, you know, the, the, the you know, the Mark Shapiro, you know, the, originally I think it was a Toromata, you know, journal article, Allah Shalom to the Toromata journal, um, you know, article. And then ultimately, I think there was a book on it, you know, the, the Yid Gimel Ikram. I mean, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's very strange. It's, it's, it's such a strange thing. Because again, like, 
the Yigdam Ikram are tied into a whole approach of the Rambam that is so antithetical to anyone pretty much outside of the YBT world, the way we, you know, the Olam Haba is based on, you know, knowing the truth as opposed to doing, you know, what is right and all these, and, and, and it's sort of weird, like, we completely reject the Rambam, but then we use this Yudgam al-Ikram as if that, that that still applies when it's literally, you know, it's, it's predicated on this whole, you know, I always say, like, th- there's a lot of things that if you said in your own name from the Rambam, your, your, your Rebbe and Yeshiva would slap you, you know, hopefully figuratively. I was listening to this Rabbi Maru interview, and they're trying to pin down what exactly is postmodernism, and that is certainly not my world, you know, the, the, those terms or anything like that. But again, like, I, I, you know, one of the things that he pointed out that was really fascinating is that it's not just, you know, these sort of academics or these French thinkers, or, but it sort of just reflects the spirit of the time. Again, you know, that that's the thing, the idea of there being like sort of dogmas that you can, you know, let me demonstrate to you or anything. Again, like, that's an like analytic philosophy. And I know, you know, you know, Dr. Sam Liebens and some of my friends are very into this. I, you know, let me, I can demonstrate that. I don't know. Again, like I just that, that whole world doesn't speak to me. So, you know, I think when you when you sort of are, you're going to assert dogma and things that that, you know, no offense to all these, you know, H seminars and things like that, but things that you really can't demonstrate, you can at best give little hints to find little, you know, a little like, you know, Tom Rayach or something that maybe might lead you in that direction to, you know, put these things forward and to basically say, here's our test. If you can't get behind these 13 points or these five points or these whatever points, um, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. Because again, remember, you know, you know, as I said before, you don't even have to be a deep thinker. You don't have to read a lot to find stuff. I mean, you know, you do a Google search and in 10 seconds, you know, you're being, you know, I mean, uh, introduced to everything that that can destroy your faith in a second. So if, if you set it up, you know, uh, uh, around dogma, I mean, you're, you're just setting yourself up for failure. I don't think in the end of the day, it's how people, that, that was such a big part of me also. It's, it's not how we live. We don't have, we don't follow dogma and rationality in so much of our life. You know, I always, you know, I always give the example, you know, someone, uh, you know, someone comes to you and says, you know, Mazel Tov, you know, Scott, you know, I'm engaged. And you say, wait a second, um, how many, how many women did you go out with? And he says, uh, 17, right? He, he, let, okay, so let's, let's look at this. Wait a second. You know, how many women are there in the world? I don't know, 3.5 billion. And you only met 17 of them? Fine, fine. Let's narrow it down. Okay, you're only going to marry a Jew. So there's 18 million Jews in the world. There's 9 million women in the world. You only met 17 of them? Fine, let's narrow it down. The ones who are married and the, you know, again, and keep on playing this along and again. But still, there are 18,275 women who you, in theory, could marry based on the criteria that you're looking for. And you've gone out with 17. Are you crazy? You're going to spend the rest of your life. You're going to have children with someone. I mean, what kind of logic is that? I mean, go out, I don't know, 5,000, 10,000, then you'll have a, a proper way to think this through. You'll make a logical decision. We'll make flow charts, whatever. You know, obviously it's, it's absurd. You know what I'm saying? We, we, we have a certain trust of our experience and our intuition. And, we, you know, it's how we cho- choose, you know, a spouse. It's how we choose careers. It's how we, it's so many things that we do. And then all of a sudden we say over here, you know, no, no, no. Let's apply the rules of science to how you're experiencing the world. Like, I would say it's like the tragedy of the Enlightenment was to sort of say, oh, we found science. Let's apply it to everything, including things that science has no busy, no, no business talking about. Very interesting. So Pesach, what would you say to somebody right now, somebody who's questioning himself and is going through a type of crisis of faith comparable to yours or perhaps different? What would you say to that person? What would you advise that person to do if that person is interested in regaining his or her faith? 
So it's interesting. There's a, there's a woman I know. I mean, I, um, I, you know, I've I, I worked a bit, I mean, much less recently, but with this organization, Project Makom, which is, you know, for kind of people from the Haredi world. And and there's this one woman who, I, I don't know exactly where she is now, but uh, I mean, I, I don't mean physically where she is. I know where she is. We're still friends on Facebook, but I don't know exactly where she is religiously. Um, and we were once talking, I remember exactly where we were standing. And she said, Pesach, like, People who go down, I don't know if she used the term rabbit hole, but people who basically go down the rabbit hole like you did. Um, I've never met someone who came out before. But in like a little bit of maybe a little bit of a delusion of grandeur, you know, like sort of Harry Potter, like I'm, I'm the boy who lived. And and I see that as a, a gift from God. You know, in other words, again, and I, that's why we're having this conversation. That's why I try to you know, I make myself open to talk to people, because I really believe that only, it was only through the gift of God that I made it back. And I feel like I was, you know, more than ever, I feel like I was put on this earth to help people with God and Torah in, in, in the biggest sense possible. Um, that said, it really depends on who I'm talking to. Um, you know, because, you know, yeah, and it's happened several times recently where people who are very scientific, very mathematical in how they experience life sort of spoke to me and asked me sort of questions. And there was nothing I could really say that satisfied them. You know, and I, you know, that's the thing. I think if if, if a person experiences life again and sort of, you know, everything, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a rationalist, you know, again, whether or not that's rational, but that's how they experience the world. I'm not sure that there's a lot I can say, you know, again, I'll recommend uh, there's this, you know, great, you know, lecture that Dr. Sam Levins gave once that I think you may find interesting. And he's an analytic philosopher. You know, that's not my approach, but maybe you would listen to that or, you know, here's a book, you know, uh, you know, but but again, I, I think someone like that, I, I think they're in a really tough spot because, again, if that is how you experience the world, I don't, I'm not sure there's a way home. I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm not sure there's a way home. Um, for people who are sort of more, you know, kind of open to their own experience, open to sort of, uh, you know, I guess, you know, the literature, poetry side of themselves, I, I think there's all sorts of things you can do. You know, I mean, I, I think, again, just, you know, going back to what I said, you know, I mean, the most important things in your life, what do you live based on? You know, again, like I keep on coming back to this podcast with Levi Morrow is uh, through Yeshiva No Right. I forgot what the what it's called. You know, that's the thing. In other words, how do you live your life? Why is it that you trust experience for everything? Oh, yeah, if I was born in China in 1627, I wouldn't. Uh, okay, but I'm choosing a wife right now based on the fact that I was born now and in this community. Wait a second. You know, I don't know. You know, my wife speaks English. That's crazy. If I lived in 1627 China, you know, my wife would speak Chinese. I, I, how can I live with this? You know, I mean, so for a person who's sort of open to just sort of thinking about how much they really do live by intuition and personal experience. I think there's a lot to talk about. You know, unfortunately, Hillel's Island has no surviving, uh, you know, family members. But if they did, I think they would owe me a big cut. Like I've, uh, you know, he's known in, the, in, the, in Israel, in America, really not. But I think that, you know, I think I've made at least a little bit of a dent. I think that, you know, if you sort of traced when I read about him, when I started talking about it, I think you would see his Amazon sales went up or something like that. They owe you a bit there. I will say, Pesach, my feeling is that I once read in a book by, or it's really an essay, included in a book called Faith and Doubt by Rev. Norman Lamzetzal, where he talked about people who are doubting perhaps one of the ways to move into a more 
sustainable form of doubt, one that you can live with, is to move away from faith that propositions into faith in propositions. In other words, rather than believing, I believe that the following thing is true, which someone might not intellectually be able to accept or at least not accept fully, he said believing in something the way that you know I can say I believe in you, I have trust, I have a sense of security with you, I have a sense of, of confidence that we have a relationship, faith in God. Faith believing in something is very different than believing that something is true or false. And Menachem Kellner, the professor from the University of Haifa, said the same thing in his book, Must a Jew Believe Anything? His feeling is based on sources. If we're talking about propositions, faith that something is true, then you don't have to believe anything. If it's belief in God, faith in God as the one who relates to Israel through the Torah, that kind of faith, you have to believe everything. And it's an interesting way of distinguishing it. And I think that can be important for some people. Right. I would also add in, I mean, one of these, uh, there's this quote, I think it was uh, Samuel Hugo Berman, I think, uh, Ber- Bergman. I'm not sure that he was uh, Orthodox Jew, but he was uh, a thinking Jew. He has this great quote also, I remember discovering in a footnote um, that, you know, man prays out of belief, but one believes out of prayer. That and and you know this is something you know I think you know Rav Dov Zinger I am very uh, very close to him I consider what, him one of my rebbeim is that by the very act of talking to God and not thinking about talking to God how does prayer work and what am I doing but just simply by talking to God by having what he calls you know nochachut you experience God you know in other words that's you know if you look in his his his, his sefer on 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 Tvila, that's in the introduction that's what he basically says you know and it, he's interesting he was a product of Rav Steinsaltz and Rav Shagar, and um, Rav Fruman. And I think he sort of pushed back on a lot of like the sort of philosophical musings of, of Rav Shagar and was just much more into stop talking about and just like do it, talk to God. You know, stop figuring out how it's going to make sense and whether it's going to work in his prayer about him or me, just do it. And as you do it, it changes. Or to take a little bit of a different approach. I mean, it's it's interesting. I've you know one of the many ways I, I've changed. I mean, I'm, I I tell my Chabad friends that there are a couple of things about Chabad that I will never be Chabad. I can you know they always say never say never. I'm like I, no, I, I could sign on the guideline right now. But one of the things that I love is that you know I just spent a Shabbos uh, with Friendship Circle out in California about a week and a half ago. And again, one of the things I love is that this sort of like. I don't know what to call it. Litfish Kirov is, you know, we're, we have to get, we have to make you from, we have to help you become from, we have to make it so that you go from living in, you know, a non-religious community in Wichita, Kansas to moving to, I, I don't know, you know, uh, Teaneck or Borough Park or, or B'nai Brock or whatever. But, but this sort of like Chabad approach of like, when you do a mitzvah, you are experiencing the divine. Can we measure it? Can you feel it? It doesn't really matter. Again, I think it's based on the morale. Morale, I think, on mitzvah, goreris mitzvah, that that in every mitzvah is the entire system. If you could sort of come to that, so then, yeah, it, I can learn Torah with someone, and I don't have to think about, oh, did it get through, and what are they going to do with it, and oh, but they're still, uh, but again, this, this sort of Chabad approach is like, you lit Shabbos candles, you just met God. I'll, I'll, I'll let God, you know, let, let's see what happens from that. You know, rather than, you know, like sort of everything is is in order to that. But that, no, there's this end result of I have been, you know, and again, so I think that Bergman in that same sense, when I pray, I, I've met God, I'm speaking to God. You know, I'm saying Baruch Atav, I take that seriously. I'm speaking to someone, it becomes a reality. And I think along with that concept of speaking to God, just doing it, feeling that experience, that nochukut, that presence in front of you, or perhaps inside of you, I also relate it myself using the mashal, the metaphor you used before about marriage. When we marry somebody, we're not looking at 
the about. We're experiencing the relationship. That relational aspect is the essence of what a marriage is about rather than finding out every detail. A biographer, in principle, might learn things about my wife that I wouldn't know. But that really is besides the point. The point is that sense of relationship. And I think that thinking of ourselves as betrothed to God, that we actually have a marriage with God, that we're in a relationship with God, that itself that itself can also present that feeling of presence, that feeling of relationship. It's not as important to know about God. It's much more important to know that I'm talking to God and that he is talking to me in some sense if I open my ears to listen. That's how I try to experience it myself. Yeah, no, it's very well said. I, I, I would agree with that, absolutely. One last question, Pesach, before we have to go, even though I could keep talking to you for much, much longer. Before you said that you will answer any question, but you will not raise any question. And I'm curious if you believe that it's important to allow people to, I'm going to use an extreme term here, to wallow in ignorance about the problems that are out there, or is it good to allow people to know what the problems are and yet know, I, Pesach Somer, made it through anyway and you can too. How do you decide which way to go? Because by saying, I'm not going to raise questions, it sounds like you're happy if they ask to try to answer them, but you'd rather not raise problems in the first place and cut it off at the pass. So, so I, I love that question. And, and again, I, I would sort of differentiate sort of between what we're doing here, what I do in the classroom, um, what I did, you know, you know, on a Shabbaton last year um, with my students. I'm very open about that. I've gone through this. In other words, the reason we're having this conversation, you know, I don't have to be hiding, you know, uh, disguise, you know, disguising my voice. You know, in other words, like I that I went through an experience I, I talked about very, very strongly. You know, people say, oh, we should introduce our students to all the questions because they're going to hear them in college anyway. And now we can give them answers. I don't know the specifics unless you have like a really good answer. I mean, if we're honest, sometimes the questions are a lot better than than, than any answer you're going to get. So to introduce that. There are moments where sort of like a student asked a question, like, if you look at me, I'm like, I'm fine, but I don't know, I'm sure if you had like a heart rate monitor on me, like, you know, I mean, we'd be going like through the roof. It's like, you know, Rabbi Summer, how do we know that? And and again, and like, I'm teaching middle school and I'm like, okay, what do I say to a fifth grader? What do I say to a sixth grader? What do I say to an eighth grader? What do I say to a 12th grader? And if we're honest, what do I say about someone who's a deep thinker versus someone who's kind of simplistic? Uh, you know, again, and people say, oh, you're going to, you're going to lie. You're going to hide things. I mean, you think about it. I mean, in so many different things, you know, like, I don't know, like, should a person live a life of absolute truth? You know, honey, I was walking the street today and I saw this absolutely gorgeous woman and I wondered what it would be like to spend the rest. But don't worry. It was purely a thought, you know, here I am. Like, no, you know, or the child, you take your child to, you know, chop, you know, and, you know, and the doctor says, you know, we have bad news, Mr. and Mrs., you know, and like, you come out, kids, what do you say? And you say, bad news, Billy, you're going to die. You know, this, this idea that like truth uber alles, you know, that like just let, you know, throw the chips where they may. And we don't really do that unless you're like a psycho. I mean, crazy people just say whatever they want, you know, and let someone else, you know, pick up all the broken pieces. We could really use the idea of Chazal talking about how some of these big questions you only talk about to two students, to one student. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I have a friend, Zach Trubov, who's a I would say a much better thinker than me, but that would sort of say that I'm even, you know, like a bar hockey, but he's, he's a really, really, you know, brilliant thinker. But one of the things that we sort of argue about is like, I'm not a big fan of putting these questions out in a book or sort of like, you know, here's the solution for the world. I, I believe in personal interaction. I believe in personal, you know, and who is this person? What is my relationship with them? And what can I tell them? And I think that, you know, again, yeah, as a classroom teacher, there are sort of 
big statements you make where, where maybe you hint at certain things. But again, you know, th th there's just sort of like throw open the doors. Here are all the great questions. Here are my bad answers. Here are my weak answers. Here's one answer that may pass. I, I don't know. I'm not, I, I think you lose a lot more than you gain. Okay. Well, Rabbi Somer, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm especially grateful that you were so willing to open up your heart and to talk about your own very real experience, which was authentically a crisis from which you emerged. As you said, you might be one of the rare ones, but we're all fortunate that you're here on the other side to be able to tell people that there is another side, that there is a way to come out, and that having experienced it, if nothing else, you can at least have that feeling somebody when they are feeling that pain, that feeling of emptiness, that feeling of wanting something more. I will certainly argue that you are a barhachi, and I just want to thank you again for being open and for being my friend and for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, this is always uh, one of the things I love about you know the, the times where I get on the podcast is that it's right. It's not just talking to an interviewer, but it's uh, a dear friend. And Bezrat uh, Hashem, it should be uh, it should be soon in person. But uh, until then, I'll, this is a great uh, great blessing for me. Subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.